Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 22nd of November 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Patrick Henningsen, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. And a bit chilly today, Patrick. It is, it is. The chill has descended on the British Isles. Finally, we're getting winter. Yeah, that'll be the beast from the east, and Putin will... Putin will no doubt be the cause of this uh, climate change. Well, what are we going to talk about? I think we're going to kick off with protests, which uh, were going on over the weekend. Yeah, there is the massive weekend, and this wasn't just in UK. This wasn't just in Europe. This was global. So World Freedom Day on Saturday, and there are protests right across the world. We'll take a look at some of these scenes. Uh, it's really incredible, in some cases unprecedented uh, in terms of the numbers, Brian. And to set the scene of that, you've actually put together a little selection of um, video clips here from around the world. Yes, we have some so, highlights from, from different cities. Yeah. So uh, let's just take a look at this story shaping up here. And so this is really about no vaccine mandates. So this is a total repudiation of this policy. And so We'll move into uh, some of these countries and see. I mean, this is probably the biggest news in terms of the numbers. Uh, we're in Australia here. This is Sydney. Sydney had something like between 150 and 200,000. Melbourne, 350 to 500,000. These estimates, of course, are approximate. But these are these are record-breaking numbers for these countries. There has never been that many people. Well, we can we can see it here, can't we? Yeah, Br Brisbane, 150,000 there. Uh, so, and again, these aren't, you know, large cities per se from European standards. So these are big numbers. 60,000 in Perth. That's the equivalent of a million in London in terms of that city. Very laid back Western Australia to get 60,000 people out on this issue is pretty amazing. And in Europe, really, this is the epicenter here. Austria, the first country to impose uh, targeted lockdowns against the unvaccinated. And so these are the people that are coming out here defying this policy. Uh, for uh, by the Austrian government here in Rome, Italy, the scenes were just unbelievable here. And you can look at the how the Italians come out. These are all peaceful protests. We'll show you a little bit of uh, some violence in some uh, cities around Europe. But look, look at the scene in in Italy yeah. here. It's just inspiration. And people have got to be doing this because they believe in it. It's it's forced them to come out to you know, to express their personal opinions. And this is really wonderful to see, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter what nationality, these are people who are acting as human beings. Yeah, yeah. Here's Croatia here. So this goes all the way into Central Europe. Here we are in the UK. Let's take a look at what, what happened in London. Look at the, the, the crowds this weekend in London, of course, as large uh, as ever on this issue. And so these are regular uh, crowds that will come out monthly on this issue, but especially passionate right now, considering what's going on around uh, rest, west of, uh, of Europe and Germany, et cetera. Leeds, here we go up north, Brian, and this is uh, protests continuing uh, up north here in Leeds, uh, New Yorkshire, and of course Manchester here. Uh, some large numbers forming there on this issue uh, as well. And Glasgow, Scotland here, uh, north of the border. And you can see passionate, passionate protesters out on this issue. So yeah. this is really... Well, go ahead, Brian. Well, what I was going to say, and of course, this is all... Oh, locally here, sorry, uh, yeah. Totnes, closer to home here in Plymouth. Yeah. Really good turnout here. I was I was there for that, to, to watch that, the tail end of that. I got in late, but a, a tremendous community there. 
Yes. I mean, really, really amazing people uh, in Totnes. We'll talk a little bit about the event that was, uh, uh, came under attack uh, by the local government and some of factions within that town. But okay, now things got a little bit more rough here uh, in Rotterdam. Uh, in the Netherlands, the Dutch are very, very passionate about in terms of the resistance on this. So you can see in The Hague, in Rotterdam, you saw some scenes like this. And of course, these are the scenes that the mainstream media, particularly the BBC, overwhelmingly focused on. They're not interested in the hundreds of thousands of peaceful protesters. They wanted to get into this. And Paris here has also, also got hot. Indeed, indeed. And so the French, the French are at the end of their rope on this issue, Brian, and things are, have gone past simmering point uh, in France and the government is just doubling down. And they're not giving any leeway at all in these policies uh, in France. So you can see the yellow vests are n no longer sort of sitting around marching peacefully. The, the, there's more sort of uh, uh, confrontations going on yeah. on the streets. And I come back to the look of the uh, police because basically these are paramilitary um, uh, people. We're seeing this happen in UK as well, but of course in France we, we've got the two types of police. We've got civilian police and the militarized police. Th this is a big departure here. Now these are protesters in London coming out to the Austrian embassy to protest the Austrian government's discrimination policy against the unvaccinated. So this is taken on international scope in terms of these embassies here. And you'll probably see, we'll have a clip here, the same thing going on uh, in Paris, French protesters coming out in support of the Austrian people against the sort of the fascist uh, policies that are now becoming vogue. Here we are uh, at the protest at the Austrian embassy in Paris. In Paris. In Paris, yeah. So you can see this, this is a totally new dimension. You normally see these things with the Free Tibet movement yeah. or something, and now you're seeing it with this vaccine issue. Yeah. So this is unprecedented. And of course, an important thing here is a lot of this film footage, if not all of it, has been taken by local people with a handheld camera or indeed on a phone. And if they had not taken the trouble to get this film clip, we would probably never be able to see what was happening. So if you're tuned into UK column from overseas, or indeed if you're here in UK itself, what you do, the information you capture is of vital importance. Okay, so uh, Patrick, thank you very much for putting that together. Uh, David, what's your thoughts on uh, seeing all of those hundreds of thousands of people on the street around the world? Well, it's very heartening. Um, the, the, it's overwhelmingly peaceful, and, and more on Rotterdam in a moment. Um, it's um, it's defiant. It's growing, uh, and it's people finding that they have um, reached the end of the tether. They're just they're not going to take um, continued uh, assaults on the liberty uh, as they see the justification for this collapsing every day. And uh, they see as the as the reasons disappear, um, the the clamp down on their ancient rights gets ever more uh, strenuous. So they they are out and they are protesting and they're protesting all around the world and all up and down uh, this country. So it's very it's very encouraging. Uh, Rotterdam. We'll be looking forward to see what Alex says about that on Wednesday. Uh, Rotterdam's a very uh, diverse city. It's only about fifty percent Dutch. It's the only major city in Europe with a Muslim mayor, uh, and there are uh, probably local issues there. 
that meant that that one was violent when the general uh, theme of these is uh, actually quite joyous, certainly very positive, certainly very peaceful, because these are people looking for the rights to be re-established. They're not looking to infringe on people's rights, quite the reverse. Yeah. Well, let's get on to the key subject of why people are unhappy. And of course, that brings us totally to uh, COVID-19, the pharmaceutical industry lockdown. Uh, but David, you've come in here on the uh, subject of Bayer AG and the head of the pharmaceuticals division in Berlin. What's what's this story yeah, about? So this, so, so this is a very senior management position in Bayer and their um, pharmaceuticals division, Stefan Ulrich. And uh, he is um, head of the pharmaceuticals division and head of the Europe and Middle Eastern region. And he's been speaking out about exactly what the vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine is and how its introduction has changed um, public behaviour. Uh, we have a little video. Ultimately, the, uh, the mRNA vaccines uh, are an example for that uh, cell and gene therapy. I always like to say, if we had surveyed two years ago uh, in the public, would you be willing to take a, a gene, th gene or cell therapy and inject it into your body, we would have probably had a 95% refusal rate. I think uh, this pandemic has also opened many people's eyes to, to innovation in the way that uh, was maybe not possible before. So David, that so was a bit of a, is, that was a bit of a mix. Yeah. Uh, sorry, a mixed message there because on one hand he's pointing out that if people had been told the truth over the fact that the vaccine was a cell or a gene therapy, they probably wouldn't have taken it. And then in the same breath, he goes on to the progress we've made. Yes. So this this is an issue that we've been pointing out for some time. It was covered in the interview we did with Dolores Cahill. This is gene therapy. It's not vaccine as vaccine used to as the word vaccine used to be defined. It's entirely new. It's gene therapy, right? And that means it's altering your your DNA on a cellular level to make it do things it didn't do before. Um, and there we have one of the, the leaders of the pharmaceutical industry proudly uh, pronouncing this. So uh, it's a it's an interesting data point. Do you think many of the British public at the moment actually realise that's what it is? Well, uh, unfortunately, no, they don't. But uh, we're going to work on it, on that as much as possible to make sure they do. And uh, just move us on here to Pat Cash. So, so Pat Cash was speaking out over the last few days uh, about his mother. And he says, uh, describing her reaction to the vaccination, four days of splitting migraines followed by two strokes and a heart attack. And he is rightly... Um, angered by what's happened. I think we might have some video of that as well. When they convince an 89-year-old woman to go and get a, a vac vaccination, and she goes out there and gets it, and they, they, you know, somebody points to me and says, you've got blood on your hands if you don't you know, do this and do that. I'd say you've got blood on your hands. The doctor who didn't check my mum, the doctor or the people who convinced my mother at 89 to get a vaccination, Four days of splitting migraines, followed by two strokes and a heart attack. Yeah. You've got blood on your hands, yes. buddy. you got... Why did they do that to an 89-year-old yeah. woman? I, it has been... Her, now she's in... She's had to... She's care. She had to get looked at. She was on her own in an apartment. She was great. 
She had collapsed on the floor. My brother just got there in time. They, res they resuscitated her. What? And that's I said to mum, she recovered, which yeah. is amazing. I said, mum, tell, tell, you, tell your cardiologist yeah. what, you, what happened. She said, I did. And I said, can you report it, please? She said, there's no point reporting it. Adverse reaction, no point, nobody listens. I was like, mum, tell him. You know, she, I didn't want to stress her. She did no. two strokes and a heart attack. I was like, she basically said, nah. No. The doctors aren't, aren't, aren't reporting these but, things, so we're not getting the truth on that side as well. Know, and you know what? Uh, and, the, the, and the trouble is with the mainstream media is, as you said earlier, you're only getting one one line of messages. Mm. So we're not getting constant coverage about the million reported adverse reactions on the MHRA. We're not getting the story about the 30,000 people uh, across Europe who've died from the vaccine. You get yeah. constant stories, I didn't have the vaccine, oh dear, I wish I had and now I'm ill or my brother's ill. You get plenty of those, but you do get the feeling that there's um, a very skewed type of reporting oh, yeah, of this. There's no, there's no doubt, there's no doubts about that. Um, and I think that's the sort of the frightening thing, isn't it, really, the censorship of, of really good good people and then, and then the shutting down, the debunking of, of these people who are, you know, top you know, top top scientists yeah. and and independent scientists and yeah. and um, so yeah. I mean, I suppose you go back and say, what is the what is the reasoning behind all this? Yeah. Is it just money? So David, so this podcast, you're trying trying to look for a reason, and of course, it, money's part of it, but it's it's about control and it's about a lot more than money. David, yeah, I believe that uh, little video clip was from a little while ago, but it's nevertheless absolutely pertinent, but emotional. You can sense the emotion as he's describing as what has happened to his mum. And that key statement, Pat, that is it worth reporting? So we've got a, we've got a yellow card uh, vaccine adverse reporting system in UK. We've got VAERS in America. And yet we know that those databases are not complete because some people don't know about the system and some people think, what's the point of reporting? And, and Harvard did a peer-reviewed study on that very issue, Brian. It was determined scientifically that it's only a very small percentage, a tiny percentage of actual adverse reactions and deaths are reported yeah. through, those, through those types of systems. And then even so, we're, we're over well over a million adverse uh, reactions in UK, which you can see if you go to the UK column, website and have a look at the vaccine, yellow card vaccine adverse reactions. We've got huge numbers in the States as well. We've got thousands of deaths. We're going to move on and look at that area in more detail in a minute. But David, you've got the BBC here, um, cancellation avalanche fears over vaccine passports. Yeah, the, the issue here is we're seeing the government narrative fall apart. Um, the, the reasons are no longer there, and they're trying to form a coherent uh, position against the, against a background where all the basic principles that they've been working from have been shown to be false. So they're starting to really toil here, and the, the stories like this are coming forward. So here we see uh, pubs and restaurants face, face an avalanche of cancellations if the vaccine certification scheme is extended before Christmas. Uh, the Scottish government said extra mitigations could be put in place uh, and that means as well as having to have uh, your vaccine passport, uh, you're going to have to have a negative COVID test as well to go to the pub, perhaps. And, and there's, a, there's concern over no one really knows, no, no one in the hospitality industry actually knows what's going to happen. We'll perhaps find out tomorrow. Um, 
And at the same time, John Swinney's under pressure to scrap the vaccine passport scheme. And the reason is, well, there's a study that's come out that's, that's looked particularly at AstraZeneca and how the, the effectiveness in uh, curbing transmission wanes over time. And this means that there's really no justification left for the vaccine passport scheme at all. Uh, the paper stated uh, transmission reductions declined over time since the second vaccination for Delta, reaching similar levels to unvaccinated individuals by 12 weeks. And uh, this article in the Times uh, also comments that this paper echoes The Lancet last month, which found that the vaccine effect on reducing transmission is minimal. So that's uh, the minimal justification for uh, the most draconian lockdown of the population uh, that we can ever imagine happening. Um, but it gets worse because if we go on now to what the statistics are saying, uh, regarding the death rates, we're seeing something deeply disturbing. And you'll notice here as we go through this, we're not looking at mainstream media source, sources, we're looking at blogs, um, because it's only people who are not in the mainstream that are reporting this. The mainstream media is silent on this issue. Uh, so here we have uh, Steve Kirch's newsletter. A new study from Germany confirms higher vaccina vaccination coverage leads to higher excess mortality, right? So a Harvard study showed vaccinations makes things worse as, uh, as far as cases goes. But a new study in Germany shows the more you vaccinate, the more people get killed. He says it's not a surprise to him. So he continues, he got a new study from a friend in Germany, um, and this shows that the higher the vaccination rate, the higher the excess mortality. He says, I can't say I'm surprised. This is the deadliest vaccine in human history by a factor of over 800 but it's always nice to get confirmation. Uh, the author's right. Uh, the correlation is plus 0.31, amazingly high, and especially in an unexpected direction. Actually, it should be negative, so that one could say the higher the vaccination rate, the lower the excess mortality. However, the opposite is the case. This urgently needs to be clarified. Excess mortality can be observed in all 16 countries. He concludes, vaccinations make things worse, not better. That's on the continent of Europe. Um, but it's also happening in Great Britain. And it's been published by the Office of National Statistics. But again, we've got to go to a blog to find it discussed because although people like the organizations like the BBC took information from the same release of data by the ONS, they didn't report this. Uh, so here we have a blog here called Peckford 42. Vaccinated English adults under 60 are dying at twice the rate of unvaccinated people of the same age and have been for six months. And there's a graph here and the, the blog links to the original data, which I've checked. This is correct. So the blue line, the low line, is the deaths per 100,000 in the age range 10 to 59 for the unvaccinated. And it's around about one. And the and the orange line is deaths per 100,000 for people who have been fully vaccinated, two jabs. And it's ranging from over two to over three. So it's, it's two, two and a half times higher, uh, the death rate, if you've been vaccinated, and it has been for six months. That's enormously significant. It's been published by the ONS, and all the mainstream media have decided to remain silent about it. Despite well, David, the fact David, it represents a huge amount of avoidable David, death. just to just to butt in there, 
that was immediately in my head. Isn't it incredible that we can have a we can have a headline uh, in one of the major newspapers about Adele's um, song shuffling? I believe that there's been a big uh, uh, furore about, but we can't talk about these death statistics. Yes, and if um, doubling the death rate um, in England isn't bad enough, it almost gets worse. So here we have um, a, a, a press release from the Scottish government dated the 21st, 21st of August 2021. Um, and it says, the chief medical officer urges pregnant women to get vaccinated. Vaccination helps protect women and their babies from severe infection. Scotland's chief medical officer is urging pregnant women to get the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, following a recent study showing evidence of increased hospitalisation, Dr. Gregor Smith is encouraging expectant mothers to discuss the vaccine with the health healthcare professionals. He said, quote, we want all pregnant women to have the information they need to make an informed choice. He then goes on to define what informed choice means. Um, so if you have any concerns, go along, see your GP. By far the best course of action for you and your baby is to get both doses of the vaccine. So he wants you to make an informed choice, and that informed choice is to get vaccinated. That was the 21st of August this year. Um, so we can then go to the BBC, and they are saying um, two days ago, uh, there's now an investigation into the spike in newborn baby deaths in Scotland. A spike in the number of deaths of newborn babies is to be investigated. At least 21 babies under four weeks old died in September at a rate of 4.9 per 1,000 births. And we have this in a chart form. And you see there we have August when the call went out for women to get vaccinated. And then the, the death rate in newborn infants uh, basically doubled uh, by September the very next month. And that is also deeply troubling. Uh, David, I, well, I was going to say I'm speechless, but I'm not speechless because I've, I've been seeing this and tracking it for a long time. The bit I'm speechless about, Patrick, is how is it that um, journalists, professional, qualified, intelligent can exist in this world? We can see this data. We can understand the appalling tale it's telling. Why can't these mainstream journalists? because all the money, Brian, is being funneled into uh, propaganda and lies. If you're in that business, there's a great career opportunities for you. But if you're trying to do uh, anything with integrity or the truth, I'm afraid uh, uh, there's no industry to support uh, you're gonna those, be... those types of people. So unfortunately, it's not going to happen. Yeah, you're going to be squashed. Well, OK, let's, let's move from uh, the babies onto something which is... Uh, a little further down the chain, but it's still important stuff because it's to do with freedoms. We've got here COVID passes, Swansea, Swansea Cinema told to close for defying the law. So I think this is one of yours, uh, David, that you've picked up on. Yes. So this is uh, a small independent cinema in Swansea called Cinnamon Co. And the owner, Anna Redfern, said she would not be complying with the Welsh government rules. So the local authorities had a little word um, made some threats and uh, closed down the cinema and that fight goes on. So we're not quite shooting people in the street. It's not quite Rotterdam, but there are the, there are ongoing daily assaults on, on liberty. And 
one of the things that's just not being allowed is any sort of independent view on this. You must comply, freedom is irrelevant, is the government's refrain over and over again. Um, and um, just, just before you go on, David, I think you've got this one, have you, on the... No, it's just related to, uh, to the story. They're Cinema & Co. running a crowdfunder. Look at that, 57,531 pounds. Right. Not bad. And really, this is just to cover the owners of the cinema. They, they're not going to comply. So trading standards, 28 days, I believe, closed. So they want to raise enough money to cover the costs of those losses and support for this uh, smaller local so, business. Yeah, so we're showing how people can help others who are prepared to stand up and take on the establishment. So the community if, responded. Yeah, they've right. responded. But if you can help further... Uh, that's the crowdfunder for Cinema and Co. And you've picked up, David, on the mail's reporting of uh, the protesters outside the Austrian embassy. Yes, Patrick's already mentioned this, but yes, uh, we're looking here at um, the solidarity across Europe, across the world here, um, that's been particularly severe in Austria, where essentially everybody who's who well, everyone's now locked down for a while. It was only the unvaccinated, in a in a strange kind of uh, throwback to the nineteen thirties uh, policy against uh, other people deemed unclean, um, and uh, it was it was delightful to see all these people um, outside the uh, embassy in London showing their support for the Austrian people. Um, I have uh, contacted the consulate, the Austrian consulate in Edinburgh, and asked for an interview. No response from them. So far, right. Um, and are you now, able? When we go, David, are you able sorry. to tell us how the mail dealt with the protests? I haven't been able to read that article, but was that was there any sensible reporting from the mail, or was it simply the government line? No, no, it was reasonably sympathetic. You know, they mentioned that uh, people are are shouting, "We stand with Austria," and "Shame on you." Um, and it mentions other other um, uh, protests as well. So it was it was reasonably sympathetic and reasonably neutral on on the issues. Now, when we get to this this um, decision to close down individuals' lives, to assault people's liberty, to close down their cinema, to close down their ability to leave their home, to say you can't work, to say you can't. Uh, you can't go to a funeral. All of these assaults on on uh, natural liberty, um, they're all, of course, justified uh, medically. And that takes us to Dr. Fauci, who will explain the mindset that underpins this. Well, one of the things that to me was most difficult to accept is that we put together a good plan for how we were gonna try and dampen down the spread of infection early on, thinking that that was accepted by everybody. And then the next day, the president saying free Michigan, free Virginia. What, what, I, I didn't quite understand what the purpose of that was, except to put this misplaced perception about people's individual right to make a decision that supersedes the societal safety. So you're suffering there, Brian, from a misplaced perception that your rights, wishes, um, and, and, and views have any um, control over your own life, 
Clearly that control now lies with Dr. Fauci and his British equivalents. Uh, I did have that uh, thought, but the other one was that, of course, here we've got one of the so-called global experts who is so arrogant he can't actually understand what anybody else might think. He has made his uh, uh, opinion known. Uh, he has said what is to happen. And the fact that some somebody else could actually stand up and say, I don't agree with you or I don't intend to do what you want, he can't actually understand that. Yeah, no, the danger is so yeah, this much. Is, yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say this is a very good point. It, the, 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 the officials making these decisions have had such a narrow life experience, are so limited in their view of how society works because they're living in a small, narrow technical field the whole time that they're not able to actually understand essentially human beings. Yeah. yeah. No, no, so much power has been devolved. Uh, to these uh, so-called science experts and chief medical officers in the last two years, um, where they're, they're in fact dictating policy. In some cases, they're dictating economic policy yeah. or property rights policy in the case of the CDC in the United States. So this is that classic rule by experts, that dystopian uh, theme that everyone's yeah. warning about. This is what a, a technocracy would look like, and it, it will go horribly wrong if you allow this to, to, to supersede the rights of the individual, for instance, in, in favor of this great uh, do it for the common good, yeah. do it for the greater good, which is, which is a collectivist principle. And our democracies, our civilization has been built upon the rights of the individual is sacrosanct. And our constitutions are all based on that. So, so this is a massive departure. And then you bring in people like Fauci, who are they're being lauded by the media, yeah. lauded by certain side of the political aisle that they're happy with uh, his diktats and his policy announcements. Unaccountable. Completely, yeah. completely unaccountable, but uh, he's still there. He's still there, yeah. He's still there. Well, we're going to be having a look in just a minute at how the UK system works, and we can see more of exactly what you're talking about, Pat, which is unaccountable people clustered in around gov government policy making, and they don't really care what the public has to say. So, David, take us on through the really the end of this segment that you've brought together as to what's been happening around the the world to do with uh, COVID and the vaccines. And uh, we're well, on two, two, thing, two, things, two things to finish, Brian. Um, both relate to the collapse of the government narrative. Um, so many nurses are now speaking out, and uh, I've now got uh, um, a, a new um, uh, Rumble account, so I can actually show some of the videos that were banned off of uh, YouTube. Uh, so we, some of the nurses that have been speaking to us um, that have not been able to broadcast, they, they'll be up in the next 24 hours. There's so many nurses speaking out about this, uh, alerting people to the dangers, telling the truth um, about the effect of the vaccines, telling the truth about the, the disease, uh, that uh, in America they've had to put out basically a warning to try and stop it. So here we have a policy statement, dissemination of non-scientific and misleading COVID-19 information by nurses. Um, and this is a, the purpose of this is to address the misinformation being disseminated by nurses. So you see here, the medical profession are losing control of their own people. Their own people are saying, we're not buying it, we're going to tell the truth, and they're having to you know, publicly threaten them. So here we see uh, the statements, um, SARS-CoV-2 is a potential dead, deadly virus, 
providing misinformation to the public regarding masking, vaccines, medications, uh, and or COVID-19 threatens public health. Um, and they go on to say that, um, uh, that, 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 that there must be the highest standards uh, as they define them. Um, they point at the, the code of ethics for nurses, and basically they're saying to the nurses, be quiet, only say what the CDC and the FDA tell you to say. Do not use your, your intelligence, do not speak about what you're seeing, do not use reason, do not use logic. And this is endorsed by a vast range of a vast range of government-funded uh, or government-mandated uh, uh, organisations that that represent the management of the nursing profession. So we see that the nurses are speaking out, but the senior organisations that represent them, they're all in bed with the government. They're all speaking exactly the words that the government wants them to speak. No one in authority. Has the, has the gumption to speak out, but the individual nurses, they do. And uh, David, what this is showing us, I think very clearly, is, is participatory democracy, which UK Column has warned about for a great many years, when completely unaccountable organisations, be they charities or non-government organisations or trusts or foundations, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, of course, would be a key one of those, all of these all of these units are clustered in and controlled by the government to support the government's own policy making so this isn't democracy as we would remember it this is a new form of controlled democracy but the the main one of the important themes of of what david is showing there with this story is pretty common in other areas and this is kind of ad hominem attack like you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. In this case, the nurses and uh, they chair. They they'll say you're not following the scientific literature. You you're not following the science. Your concerns are ungrounded. And what they do is they'll cherry pick their own peer-reviewed science papers, throw those up, and say this is the truth. And yeah. meanwhile, there's a whole raft of science and literature that defies yeah. the consensus. So you can just basically be selective in that sense. And they do that with the climate issue as well. Yeah. That's an accusation to smear somebody saying, oh, you're anti-science because you don't believe in what the IPCC is saying. And it's the same thing here. Yeah, same thing. And again, it, I'm going to say... It is, it, we, just a, it is, it is I, a corruption of science. Go on. Sorry, sorry, beg your pardon. I was just going to say, David, again, if we had Mike Robinson here, Mike would be pointing people back to the online harms bill because in the way that you're describing these nurses are going to be censured for speaking out against government policy, what the online harms bill is going to censor anybody who dares criticise what the official policy is. So you're, you're giving a little snapshot there, but in UK, we know where this is going. It's going where the UK government will say, if you dare to criticise any edict that comes out of the UK government, you're going to go, first of all, to uh, a star chamber, I've no doubt. We won't call it a court. And you're going to be put in prison because you challenged the government. Go ahead, David. Yes, I must apologise to people we're talking over one another. There's just enough delay on the line to make it a little bit awkward. I think it's a two-way online Gallic to English translation that does it. Um, but the point that Brian was making there is very good. And also, it shows you the corruption of science as as a as a as an endeavour. Uh, it's becoming ever more corrupt, ever more undermined. And of course, the professions 
are becoming ever more undermined and they're selling out to whatever government uh, policy or talking point comes along because they follow the money. Okay. Uh, but the nurses are doing better and the people are doing better. And just to finish this, we have a little, a little clip from an Australian gentleman who absolutely understands what's going on. He sees it quite clearly and he puts it very well. I don't think you guys are giving the government, the Australian government, enough credit for all the hard work they're doing behind the scenes. Yeah? These guys are doing two things at once. They're trying to convince those who aren't jabbed to take the jab because the jab will protect them. At the same time, they're trying to convince those who have taken two jabs that those two jabs don't protect them and they need a booster. <laughs> so in other words, <laughs> if you don't take the jab, you will not be protected. But if you've taken two jabs, you're not protected. <laughs> oh, who's going to believe this shit? Hey, who's going to believe it? Who's going to believe it? Going over there once. Going over there. Shut up, idiots. <laughs> and I think that actually sums it up very well. The government's case is falling apart. The, there's, there's plenty of tyranny, but there's no justification. Yeah, what would Crocodile Dundee be saying? <laughs> we, we haven't heard from him yet, but you've got another clip here, I think. I, I do, but just, just a quick follow-up on, on this important issue that we were talking about with, with regards to the nurses. They're doing the same exact thing uh, with doctors. They're accusing doctors of being anti-science or somehow being apostates to the profession because they're not following the government guidelines or centralized policy with regards to treatment or early treatment and things like yeah. that. It's very disempowering for the nurses. It's disempowering for the doctors. It actually goes against their medical training. Yeah. And so what the reason is that's that's centralized health policy. And that what when that's what the government is attempting. But what the what doctors have their relationships with patients and the ability to give treatments based on the individual, that is grounded in law that, that informed consent, freedom of choice. This yeah. medical contract between the people and, and the doctor, that's grounded in law. That's not centralized policy. So you can see how these things are fundamentally clashing here. Yeah. And so this is where the, I think the rubber meets the road, to use a, another cliche yeah. uh, on this issue. And this is where we're seeing the flashpoint now. Yeah. Well, we've got to say to professionals, if you're a doctor or a nurse and you don't believe in what's going on and your professional training and your professional knowledge, tells you that the policy is wrong. You've got to speak out. There's no doubt about this. What about the second little clip you've got here? Well, this is from Australia as well. This is the Northern Territory's uh, chief minister. His name is Michael uh, Gunner. And uh, he has got uh, a problem uh, with this vaccine issue. And this is probably one of the most incredible statements I've ever seen. I've, we've seen some incredible things coming out of Australia, but let's roll it. It's pretty self-explanatory. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer, absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you campaign against the mandate, if you campaign against the people being vaccinated in vulnerable settings, teachers in classrooms. I'll be really clear, at that point in time, people were actually supporting the idea of a teacher being unvaccinated in a remote community classroom. 
with kids who cannot be vaccinated. I reject that. I, let, I still reject it. And if you are out there in any way, shape or form campaigning against this mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. If you say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. We are absolutely going to make sure as many Territorians as possible are vaccinated. That is our best protection against this thing. And if you look at the Doty modelling that's only come out since, that says if you double dose 80 in remote communities, five and up, I think you'll see our vaccine mandate is absolutely crucial to protecting lives, particularly Aboriginal lives. And I will never back away from supporting vaccines. And anyone out there who comes for the mandate, you are anti-vax. Okay. Double jabbed, anti, you're an anti-vaxxer. So I, I, I don't know what his deal is up there, but... Uh... You don't know what his problem is. I'm going to say, I think I do know what his problem is. You're, you're looking and hearing a man who has been psychologically reframed. He, he, is he, he is repeating a mantra which has been drilled into his head. And to be fair to him, he might not even have known that that information has been put in his head. So he's not functioning as a normal cognitive human being. What, you, what you've got is a machine. We got, a, we got a little bit more information later in the news. You're smiling, David. I, I'm being tough on this one. I, I, I thought that was hilarious. That, that was the sound of failure. I, he, he was coming apart there. Now, but do you notice, A, his only, his only justification for the policy now is stuff it. Right? That's, that's the justification. Um, but also, right, he's saying we don't care what your vaccination status is. Okay, we're actually saying to people we don't care what your vaccination status is. But there's a different reason. He's looking for traitors. Right? And we're looking for converts. We're looking for people who understand that they've been lied to. He's looking to cast anyone out who dares think even just a little bit differently. Who's the totalitarian? It's clearly him. Who's losing? Clearly him. And, and you're right. The, the converts make the biggest evangelists. And yeah. the uh, extra protesters you're seeing on the street, which we showed you that highlight reel, they, a lot of vaccinated people. We spoke to some ac activists in France over the weekend. That's what they're saying. There's a lot of double jabbed people there that are now saying, hey, I have to get the booster. Otherwise, I am no longer yeah. vaccinated. My health pass in France will not work unless I get the booster now. They're out on the street. Yeah, because they know that they've been uh, misled. They've been misled from the outset. Well, let's move across to how the system works in UK. And last week, we were having a look at the Commission on Human Medicines. We just pop this back up on screen so that our viewers and listeners can find it themselves on the government.uk website. Uh, but our key point is that if you think the MHRA is in control of vaccine safety, this is absolutely not correct. We've got to focus in on the Commission on Human Medicines. And if you're thinking, I've never heard of that, this is the whole point of our reporting today. Uh, we showed this slide, which is that if you think you can pin down the Commission on Human Medicines, well, it gets pretty difficult because you end up in a web of um, expert advisory groups. Uh, this is as taken from the government's website. So we decided to produce the UK column uh, wiring diagram. Uh, this is a very murky pond, but let's have a look at what's clustered around the human medicines. So EAG, these are all EAGs expert advisory groups. We've no idea of the interests of the individual experts because that gets more and more murky. So are they working for government? Are they working for the public? 
Are they are working for the pharmaceutical industry? We simply don't know very often. Um, but let's just bring all these in. So we've got cardiovascular, cardiovascular chemistry, pharmacy standards. Uh, we've got clinical trials and biologicals, and that includes vaccines. Uh, we've got advisory groups on gastroenterology, rheumatology, immunology, dermatology. Uh, we've got medicines for women's health database. Uh, we've got neurology, pain and psychiatry. Uh, we've got oncology, hematology, pediatric medicines, patient and public engagement. Well, as we pointed out, we did have that, but that's not running at the moment. Pharmacovigilance, this is the overarching name for safety in uh, pharmaceuticals and vaccines. Uh, pa sorry, patient and public engagement, sin twice, apologies for that. Uh, we've got sodium valparate uh, figures, which UK Column has seen, indicating about 35,000 children damaged as a result of sodium valparate. But don't worry, because there's, there's a separate advisory group. Opioids, uh, we've got isotretinoin. I'm not sure what that one is. No doubt somebody will tell us. COVID-19 therapeutics. Uh, we've got a COVID-19 benefit risk expert working group. They've been in the mainstream media constantly, Patrick, I believe, or maybe not. And uh, we've got COVID-19 vaccines and safety surveillance. So if this is the spider's web protecting the public, uh, who is the spider? Well, it's this gentleman, Professor Samunia uh, Pia Mohammed. And this is the overarching expert, and it's on his shoulders that safety uh, rests. Now, in this excellent article on the University of Liverpool website, thank you, thanks to the university for uh, providing the information, uh, this is one of the things that he said. This is going back for December 2020, so it's interesting to hear it with a bit of hindsight. The data show that this vaccine is 95% effective. It's effective in all the groups that were given the vaccine within the trial, irrespective of age, sex, race or country that they lived in. We're obviously a bit confused in the news today in 2021 because reality doesn't seem to reflect what this man was telling the country in December 2020. Uh, he went on, we've also looked at the safety of this. The safety of the vaccine is similar to other vaccines, and most of the side effects are very mild and usually last for a day or so. Uh, David, very quickly, um, you showed the clip there of the man talking about the side effects of his elderly mother. Uh, they certainly weren't mild and they didn't last for a couple of days. No, this is this is right. And I'm just looking as you're going through here, I'm looking up some of the people in these EAGs. And it's very interesting. It immediately gets you straight to the cutting edge of um, essentially working in the area of genes and, genet and genetics, which seems a little surprising. Well, of course, it doesn't if we're dealing with gene therapy, which uh, has now emerged as what the true status is of the vaccine is. But let's have a look at the elevated professor and see what else he said. He, he said this, it's important to note uh, what we've got is data relating to the vaccine up to this point. It's important that we undertake surveillance following the use of vaccines in the population. And we were very keen to recommend that the MHRA undertake active surveillance of the vaccine after it's used. And this includes the use of yellow cards as well as a special active monitoring program 
which we will be inviting people to join. So we had nothing to worry about, Patrick, according to this man at the time. Uh, mild side effects, 95% effective, and we were going to monitor everybody to make sure they were safe. Was he misinformed? Was he speaking what he believed to be the truth? But he'd been misinformed, or was he was he lying to the public? He is effectively repeating a script uh, that's been given to everybody uh, in every government agency and every media outlet regarding the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, Professor Pierre Mohammed, the claim that uh, the vaccines are ninety five percent effective, he is effectively quoting the relative risk reduction statistic and not the absolute risk reduction. The absolute risk reduction is below one percent. The relative risk reduction you can you can tout is 95%. That's a deceptive figure. And the FDA in America warned the pharmaceutical industry for years, don't use the relative risk reduction because it's highly deceptive. You're making a false claim about your yeah. product. But they were allowed to keep using it. And guess how they were allowed to do that? Money. money. Lobbying and money. They pump so much money into various government agencies, foundations. They lobby Brussels. They lobby London. They lobby Washington, and they get to use the terms that they can dictate to the government rather than yep. the other way around. The regulators are completely AWOL. They are absent without leave. Yep. They, 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 all they are is gatekeepers with a nice, shiny gold key for the pharmaceutical industry. And totally linked to the pharmaceutical. So we, we want to make it quite clear to the UK uh, column audience today that if you want to know who is ultimately responsible, it's Professor Sir Munir Pir Mohammed is the man, even though many people think it's June Rain in MHRA. I can see you frowning, David. I'm just going to give you a 20-second response while we move on through this segment. Professor Pir Mohammed is also in uh, is also the chair of the COVID-19 vaccine risk benefit expert working group. And since we now know that if you're between 10 and 59, you have twice the chance of dying if you're vaccinated compared to if you're unvaccinated. Where is he? What's he doing with that information? Well, I'm going to help you why, out. Why is, why, is, why, is he, why is he not everywhere across the press alerting people to that risk? Well, well, we'll maybe explain a little bit more in just a second. Let's follow on through. Uh, I couldn't resist this. Somebody sent it in to us. So thank you very much to the viewer. It's the Twitter page of a BBC journalist called Rich Preston. He says, after a few days feeling a bit rough, I've tested positive for COVID. I'm triple vaccinated and always super careful. Mask distance just goes to show how transmissible this virus is. Please don't be complacent just because you're vaccinated. It's still out there, Patrick. So it doesn't work, but you still need it. And it's what the vaccine passport concept is based on. This thing doesn't stand up to the, even the most basic it's interrogation of logic. Yeah. Well, let's have a look at how people responded to that. So these were some of the tweets that came back. Douglas Cunningham said, same thing happened to me. It's been awful. But I'm so thankful I was triple vaccinated. Uh, what can you say to somebody like that? It's incredible. Uh, TM said, maybe, just maybe, that vaccine is the problem. Well, good grief. Uh, questions like this are going to get you in prison in 2022. Uh, we got this one here. 
uh, why, excuse me, why isn't my three vaccines didn't work? The answer to this equa equation. So that one was spot on. But Louise Templeton said they did work. He's still alive and he's confined to his spare room, feeling a bit grotty, not in an ICU. And, and here we can see how deep this uh, misinformation is ground into people's heads. They cannot think logically. I say, I've got shingles. Oh, that means the vaccine's working. Yeah. So that's a, your immune system's working. Okay, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So we thought we would attempt to show people what's really going on in a simple video clip. And we're just going to take you into one of the MHRA board meetings uh, where uh, June Rain was asked a question about malicious yellow card adverse reports. So let's have a final question on yellow card is um, how the scheme validates reports of side effects that might have been made maliciously. And uh, the questioner has cited anti-vax groups as a potential example of that. So how do we how do we deal with malicious reporting or possible malicious reporting? June? Yes, uh, an important aspect, and uh, it does rely on the careful scrutiny by the teams of scientists, clinicians, scientists. And obviously any report is treated as a report that feeds into signal detection. Uh, but at that point, is it a valid signal is a key step of the pathway. And uh, experts will look very carefully, give the benefit of the doubt. But if there's a suspicion that this isn't a true bill suspected adverse reaction, that's actually one of the issues that will be discussed. So I can't give you any figures at the moment, but we do look out for what might not be a truly attributable adverse reaction and uh, would err on the side of treating everything um, as if it could be until we know that there may be an element of doubt there. Yeah, it's also important. That we, that's why we want as many signals as we can possibly get, uh, because it also helps to keep it into context. Uh, because if you suddenly get one outlier, it becomes you know, a, le a less credible signal, perhaps, than uh, uh, if you've got sort of multiple uh, contacts, as it were. But, uh, okay, well, thank you, June. So to help things along, I actually took some of uh, her statements so we can bring them up on the screen and then we can, we can talk about them a little bit. Let's have a look at how she got into the, to the reply she gave. Obviously, any report is treated as a report that feeds into signal detection, uh, but at that point it is a valid. Uh, that point it is a valid signal is a key step of the pathway. Now we've got what Alex would call word soup going on here because she's talking words. She's not talking factual information. She's simply saying that when they get a report which could provide a signal that it was a vaccine adverse reaction, that's the first step along a path to something else happening. She says experts will look very carefully, give the benefit of the doubt, but if there is a suspicion that this isn't a true build adverse reaction, that's actually one of the issues should be that will be discussed. Okay, so this is very clear. And now the killer, because she says, so I can't give you any figures at the moment but what we do look out for, uh, what might not be a truly attributable adverse reaction, 
and she goes on and she says, and would err on the side of treating everything um, as it could be until we know that there may be an element of doubt there. This is all as clear as mud. Let's put some words in her mouth. What she's really saying is that she's sure the public will want to understand that if I do not have the numbers on malicious false yellow card adverse reactions, I cannot have the numbers of the actual vaccine created adverse reactions. If she does not know how many of the yellow card adverse reactions are malicious and false, she cannot know what the true data is for which ones are vaccine adverse effects. Um, David, I'm going to come back to you because I think you're better qualified at statistics than I am. But have I missed something? This lady is admitting she has no information um, about the vaccine adverse reactions. The whole, the whole framing of the question is quite delusional here. Firstly, this the anti-vaxxers are going to be putting in false reports. Right? That's what we call an outrageous conspiracy theory. Okay. Uh, secondly, what do we know about the reports? We've heard it here from Pat Cash. We've heard that we, we, we know from the MHRA that there's only a tiny proportion of the adverse reactions are, are actually reported. Why are they not discussing that? This is smoke. They're trying to obscure reality here. They're smoking the words. The reason the words don't make any sense is they're trying to obscure the truth. They're not trying to communicate it. Exactly. The whole concept of malicious reporting is a straw man. Yeah. It's a straw man. And, and just wait, just wait until they blame this one on the Russians. <laughs> the Russians or the Iranians are going to have banks of... of People or, putting in false yellow card. I never or, thought of that, Patrick. Or Kim Jong-un in North yeah. Korea has a, a people with old you know, 468 computers or whatever, yeah. hitting the yellow card system with fake reports just to, what, empower the anti-vaxxers, right? Yeah. So we, we, we've seen a demonstration that MHRA, which the government puts forward as the body in charge of safety over vaccines, the body um, monitoring all of the yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data, is nothing of the sort. It does not even know what the figures are about vaccine adverse reactions. And the man we've got a stick on is Mr. Pierre Mohammed. He is the man with the ultimate responsibility. And of course, at the moment, nobody's taking him to task. So maybe there's a few people out there that like to get writing and get their emails in and pick up the phone and ask that learned professor what he's doing to protect people. And just to... Uh, uh, stick up for the nurses, really. Um, I was talking to a nurse over the weekend, deeply concerned about the use of midazolam uh, in uh, hospitals. Um, uh, some of the conversation was about Cornwall. Um, but we got hold of um, a document here, which is very interesting because the guidance for anticipatory prescribing and symptom control at the end of life, uh, that document for Royal Cornwall Hospitals the whole procedure is under review because they scored so badly in their previous end of life treatment. But why do we need to keep an eye on these people? Because uh, here we can call up midazolam and we can see that it's clearly listed. 
with what the maximum daily dose is. That's just dropped off the edge of your screen, but it's 60 milligrams in a 24-hour period. And it would appear that uh, these limits on end-of-life drugs are simply not being adhered to. And indeed, many people are being put on end-of-life pathways simply because they're elderly and they haven't been vaccinated. So this is pretty wicked stuff, Pat. And add to the, that the, uh, the DNR notices do not resuscitate and that whole scandal that happened really in conjunction with the beginning of the pandemic. With this, it's, uh, it, it might be responsible for quite a few uh, uh, casualty numbers yeah. that we've seen. Yeah. Well, David, we're going to switch back to Scotland and I believe Nippy has been giving of her best in uh, Scottish Parliament clip from uh, First Minister's questions and uh, she's been asked about cover-ups within the NHS. I will not, uh, and this government will not tolerate cover-ups uh, or secrecy on the part of any health board uh, and where there are concerns about that we will address those concerns. So you got that straight from the horse's mouth, if, you, if she doesn't mind the phrase. No toleration of cover-ups. Well, two days later, this is what we got in the Sunday Post. An article, a culture of cover-up. I believed the doctors when they said my baby's uh, was an isolated case. Now I feel like a fool. So here we have Teresa Smith and her husband, Matthew, who lost their baby shortly after birth at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. They've spoken to a public inquiry, um, but they are devastated to find out that the information they gave to the public inquiry will remain secret because lawyers acting on behalf of the Scottish government, acting on behalf of Nicola Sturgeon and on behalf of Great Glasgow Health Board, um, have acted. The judge agreed with official lawyers that parts of the evidence could cause public alarm and uh, damage to the reputations of clinicians and professionals who had no chance to contest her claims. So we will not tolerate cover-up unless the information is such that it will cause public alarm, in which case we will act to achieve a cover-up. This is uh, Scotland in 2021. Well, David, don't be too hard on uh, the Scots because, of course, we have the same system operating here in, in uh, England and the ICSA child, um, child Abuse Inquiry comes to my mind where uh, people were not allowed to give evidence even though they were key uh, child abuse survivors. Um, evidence was redacted. Um, whole sections of, of key witnesses' information was redacted. So this is the standard policy. If we want to be optimistic, we can say the good news is if they start doing things in ultra secret or redacting information, then we must be pretty close to the target. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you like what the UK column does, please join us. Please su subscribe. Help us to expand. That's what we're working on at the moment. Um, so all of our contact details here on screen. If you haven't yet got your winter hoodie, uh, we're going to encourage you to do that because, of course, stay warm is important. Staying warm is important for your physical and mental well-being. 
Uh, we've got climate change is going to make these hoodies essential, Pat, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And because you have to have your door open for an, uh, fresh a, air. Fresh air for yeah. what, 10 minutes every hour because yeah. of COVID. So obviously the, the, the hoodie is essential for, for that. I yeah. Think. So lots of benefits. You can stay warm. You can look good. You can open your doors and windows to get that fresh air in and the COVID virus out. So UK column hoodie thoroughly recommended. And I want to say that over the weekend, I was utterly stunned. I hadn't looked at it for about 36 hours, but I went to look at David Noakes's uh, legal fundraiser. It's now up over £28,000. So I've got to say thank you so much to all the people who've contributed. And the other thing to note is that it's important that uh, many people have been very generous and given big donations, and that's lovely but also where people have given a small amount and it's what they can afford, that is also lovely. So we recognize there's a great mix of capability in helping support David and his uh, family, of course, absolutely uh, delighted. Now, we're moving on some uh, local stuff here, I think, Pat. What have you sure, got? Sure, sure. More, more local news, but you know, we, we talked about uh, how this cancellation culture uh, and especially with regards to the pandemic and anything vaccine related, uh, how pressure is being put on people, not only social media, in the press, doctors, nurses. Well, uh, someone tried to produce a live event uh, in Totnes, and it was called the Awakening Conference. And uh, they had originally booked, the conference had booked the Civic Hall, and then the word got around to the, uh, the local bureau bureaucracy, and uh, they managed to petitioned to cancel the event there and moved on to Dartington Hall. Pressure was put on the trust not to accept the booking. Right. And so that was canceled. And then the third venue was a private hotel in Torquay. And uh, here's a state, we have a statement from uh, the organizer here. Let's just take a look at this. Public Health England and Torbay Council rang the CEO of the hotel group and insisted that he cancel the conference booking the gentleman really had no choice but to comply with the very strong directive from Torbay Council and Public Health England. So I don't blame the man. This is Dr. Stephen Hopwood. He's the event organizer of this conference. Now, the conference was talking about COVID and vaccines is, is a key. It was talking about COVID policy, the science, uh, the medical ethics, the legal side, the policy side. The, right. And, and the, the qualifications of the speakers were, you know, very, very good. And, yeah. and uh, so some, some basically uh, came in person uh, to do a virtual event afterwards. So right. uh, credit to the uh, organizer, Stephen, he stuck with it. They did a virtual event. I also spoke at that as well. Uh, and so some people came in by Zoom at the end. The quality of the information is absolutely a great resource for people on yeah. all these different fronts. But we're not allowed to hear it because Totnes and uh, Torbay Council say if you don't give the government's own opinion, this is what we've had earlier in the news, if you do not adhere to the government's opinion, we're going to shut you down. If you don't agree with the consensus. The consensus. Whatever, whatever yeah. the consensus is, nobody seems to know quite what the, exactly the consensus is. Yeah. People just make it up as they go along. And the worst part about this, Brian, I might add, is it's a lovely community, as you know. This is a great, uh, Totnes is a, a, a wonderful community with wonderful people there. But the local press was malicious yeah. and slandered all of the speakers, accused them all of being racist and uh, accused the event of being an extremist and 
anti-Semitic and all these other things. Yeah. And so they really went below the belt on this. And it's, it's sad because it, it, it paints the town in a bad name that the petty dictators who do those sort of things in the corporate, in the local corporate press and in the, in the council, yeah. uh, that they would do that and they would be so frightened or threatened by professionals getting together and discussing policy about the most important and biggest event in human affairs, yeah. maybe in history, uh, they would want to shut that down and defame and libel and slander uh, the participants of the event for no yeah. reason at all and literally telling lies and putting it in the press. Maybe it's fear driving them, Patrick, fear that they're fearful people are beginning to wake up. We, I think, will be speaking more about that um, in the days to come because uh, yeah, what happened in the background, uh, totally unpleasant. Now, um, David, both yourself and uh, Pat picked up on the Carl Rittenhouse story in the States. Um, Pat, I think you're going to lead off on this with just an overview. Well, the, the, the big news over the weekend really was after the trial here. There were riots uh, in different cities across the country. As a reaction to the verdict, uh, the jury found Kyle Rittenhouse, this is an American young man, a teenager, uh, 18 years old, found him not guilty of all these various charges, of mur including murder charges. And, uh, well, David can get into the actual uh, bolt nuts and uh, the bones of the case, but uh, to suffice to say, this was painted as a racial event. Right. The fact that they've acquitted him, the jury, means that uh, this was a, a victory for white supremacy and racism, uh, when in fact there were no uh, black people or anyone of color involved in the shooting that the case was about. And Joe Biden himself weighed in on this last year when he was a candidate, and he's you know, accused Wittenhouse effectively of being a, a white supremacist while he was running for president. So yep. he could come up for defamation charges because he was a private citizen when he, he did that. And so this is really egg on the face of Biden and the mainstream media who have constantly been misrepresenting the facts of this case. It's, it's kind of unbelievable that this, how badly they've, they continue to get it wrong and they've whipped up the mobs and now they're out rioting based on basically a whole pack of lies. And, uh, and it's not gonna stop there with this verdict here. This is, uh, House Judiciary Chair uh, Jerry Nadler uh, here at, a, at an event here. I think this is an LGBT event or something. But as you can see, he's um, towards the end of his career, Brian, to put it lightly. But what has he did? He's not happy with the verdict here. Uh, he is basically going to pressure the Department of Justice to find some reason to bring federal charges against this young man. Now think about that, how unbelievable that is. Well, this is, this is sort of heading towards double jeopardy, isn't it? It's past double jeopardy. So the, yeah. the whole trial by jury, effectively, of, of the U.S. is... That's yeah, the, the jury didn't get it right, so we're going to stamp down on them. That's the basis of the whole democracy, of the whole constitutional republic, is, is trial by jury. So this is the politicization of the Department of Justice is really dangerous. This began under President Obama with AG Eric Holder and did this on a number of things, the Ferguson... Yeah. Uh, a story, Trayvon Martin, and all these different, what they can find a racial element or something like that, they'll go in with the DOJ and the FBI and they'll create something. And it's totally politicized. It undermines the judiciary. It undermines that whole branch of government. Yeah. So it's, it's hugely dangerous. And I just might add here that, you know, there were cameras in the, in the room, in the courtroom the whole time, and this was got massive pub publicity. But did anybody know that Gis Ghislaine Maxwell's 
uh, trials also started this week. You won't see much of it uh, in the media. And all you get is a few of these sketches here, uh, Brian. And if you think of the gravity of this case, uh, zero media coverage. Well, no, th this is just a few children allegedly abused. This is not important at all. It, it, exactly. And then just on the back of this, and I'll hand it over to, uh, to David here, um, you know, this is what's come out about this case here. The victims of Jeffrey Epstein have questioned why only Ghislaine Maxwell is on trial and not the other women who say they acted as his groomers and recruiters. It has emerged, uh, one is set to testify against the British Harris in the court later this month. So, you know, where are the co-conspirators? Uh, why aren't they all uh, on trial? So, but again, this is this should be a big debate in the sort of national, international discourse and media. Politicians should also be weighing on this as well. It is kind of an important case. Yeah. So, David, do you want to take us in a little bit more? You've got the New York Post here. Yes. I mean, just, just to set the scene here. So there was a riot on ongoing. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who was, uh, his, his father lived in the town, so he was there um, and decided to go down and... Um, essentially to protect property and life. He had his first aid kit and what have you. Um, and uh, some rioters set fire to a dumpster and were trying to uh, run the, the, the uh, resulting inferno into the police lines. And uh, Carl Rittenhouse put the fire out and they started to chase him. And uh, it, it was very violent. It was a riot. And he defended himself. He, he was armed. He had a he had a rifle, and uh, he shot um, three people who were attacking him, and um, killed two. And as far as I could see, actually, get, bear in mind he was seventeen at the time, showed <clears throat> considerable res restraint and very considerable discipline over what he did. Uh, that day, that given his youth and the nature of the situation he was in, actually spoke very highly about him. So we have, as you said here, New York Post, an, an opinion piece uh, saying it was a clear case of self-defence. Uh, the, the, those who watched the, the, the case and the, the trial, uh, which obviously didn't include most of the United States media, um, knew that it, it was going to be an acquittal, that it was going to be not guilty, because Amongst other things, um, what the, the person who he shot and who survived was on the stand and was giving evidence and was asked, um, when you had your hands up, um, Mr. Rittenhouse didn't shoot you, is that right? Right. And when you pointed your gun at him, then he shot you. Yes, that's correct. So it was clear self-defense. Um, I've got a couple of stills here um, of the, the man on the floor here is is um, is Kyle Rittenhouse uh, being kicked here and um, um, this second still here is actually the the man who rounded on him with a firearm and uh, that's that's um, Kyle Rittenhouse shooting him in the arm there um, and just before, I suspect, uh, he himself was, was, would have been shot if, if that hadn't happened. So how is, how is the political world in America uh, greeting this? Well, if they're from the left, um, they are just doubling down on his guilt. Here's Andrew Cuomo. Uh, today's verdict is a stain on the soul of America and sends a dangerous message about 
who and what values our justice system was designed to protect. We must stand unified in rejecting supremacist vigilantism. So you see, he's a white supremacist. I know what you're thinking, Patrick, all the people who shot were white, but that doesn't seem to factor in. Um, and the media coverage was really lamentable, by and large. Um, and actually, it got worse because than just lying. Here we've got Forbes um, reporting that the Rittenhouse judge banned MSNBC from the courthouse after a staffer followed the jury bus. A, a, a staffer from the NS, MSNBC was pulled over for running a red light as he was following the jury bus and the entire media organisation got banned. The judge says, quote, it's a very serious matter. I don't know what the ultimate truth of it is. But it uh, would go without much uh, thinking that someone who's following a jury bus, uh, it's an, that is an extremely serious matter. Um, Rittenhouse's lawyers come out after the, the, the verdict um, and, and attack CNN and MSNBC for false reporting and botching basic facts. Uh, so we see a, a, huge, a, a huge failure Oh, sorry, so, we're, on the wrong, we're on the wrong slide there. Sorry, one, David, one, I one think this is, this is the one you've moved over yes. to, Fox News. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so Fox News here, uh, the Rittenhouse lawyers attacking uh, CNN and MSNBC for false reporting um, and, and uh, botching the basic facts of the case, um, including things like uh, MSNBC host Joe Scarborough detailing that Rittenhouse shot his firearm 60 times. It's just complete nonsense. So it remains to be seen whether there'll be lawsuits here. There could be huge lawsuits because such is the lying that's going on about uh, about this young man. Um, but the the, the uh, response, um, sorry, this is uh, also from Fox News here, Rittenhouse lawyer, um, it attacks uh, the, the false reporting quote, it makes me angry that they can't take the time to uh, at least get the generic basic facts correct because it didn't fit the story they wanted to tell. And this is a significant point. Why, were the, why was all the reporting or the, a vast amount of the reporting factually incorrect? Because the, the media organisations had an agenda, they wanted to tell a story and they didn't care if it wasn't true. Um, and uh, here we see, finally, the Babylon Bee, uh, who's a, a satirical site, uh, ra raising, um, mocking the, the, uh, the left-wing angst, saying the Rittenhouse verdict raises concern that it's no longer safe to beat people to death with a skateboard. Um, so it, it's, it shows you once again how polarised um, political life is in America. It shows you once again how... Um, how much the media is failing in their duty to inform and to question and have become simply uh, an arm of the state um, putting forward propaganda in the way that we're only too familiar with in Britain. Um, and uh, it's, it shows you, finally, uh, the essential nature of a jury trial as the last backstop for liberty. Patrick, if you... Well, the, words. The, all, I agree with uh, all those things that David said, and and this is this. Remember, this whole event came uh, on, in the wake of the George Floyd riots last summer, and so the the governor of Wisconsin had the National Guard stand down. Okay, they refused the National Guard. Uh, the Democrats were all shouting defund the police, 
The police stood back. And so what happens? People, the businesses put out a call. Can you come and help us protect the business? He was just a few miles away in the Illinois. His father lives in Kenosha, et cetera. He works right. in Kenosha. He shows up. Someone gave him an AR-15 yep. firearm. And uh, so there you go. That, that's not vigilanteism. That's just community policing. And this is what the Democrats were yeah. saying needs to happen in Minneapolis after the death of George Floyd. So yeah. they can't have it both ways. But the reaction is really dangerous from Bill de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, as, as David showed, uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president, Gavin Newsom, the California governor. They're all basically decrying this verdict and saying that they let a, a, a racist or a white supremacist off what they're doing is basically baiting the mob. And so this is mob justice. Now, how are you going to get a jury in the future, uh, in, so, in some cases like this, yeah. to want to actually render an honest verdict because without being afraid for their life, they could be hounded for years. Who knows with, with what we're seeing right now. Yeah. So politicians traditionally do not weigh in on legal matters. And Barack Obama changed all that when he became president. He got directly involved with uh, all these cases personally before they were being litigated. Yep. So it really kind of polluted the, the whole judicial process. And yep. so it, this is the difference between now politics and politics 20 years ago, yep. is we have this additional problem of, of mob justice and pol politicians are basically ginning it up. And that change has been engineered. That's what the change agents were for. That's what the disruptors were for. Now I want to just end on having a very quick look at this. Just for, a, just for a minute or so, because I think it helps focus our mind on what the so-called mainstream media is really up to. So let's go to the Behavioural Insights team and a very big thank you to one of our viewers who picked up on this little bit of work. So it's the Behavioural Insights team. Remember, this is the team of people that produce Mindspace document with the British Cabinet Office where the British government was boasting it could change the way people thought and the way they behaved and they wouldn't know what had been done to them to change their behaviour. So this group of people, the Behaviour Insights team, look at the headline, the power of TV nudging viewers to decarbonise their lifestyles. So this is the document. And uh, well, what's it about? It's about broadcasters' role in saving the planet. Uh, you need to go onto their website in order to have a look at the uh, full document. Uh, but who's been in bed with the British, uh, with the Behavioural Insights team? Well, it's Sky. And if you want to get a little bit of a flavour from them, you need to go to the Sky website where you can see that they are now into leadership. They're not there to report the news and facts. They're going to be future leaders. Uh, so here they are standing on stage in all their glory. But let's come to the uh, key lady, Donna Strong, because in this report with the Behavioural Insights team, she said this, by partner partnering with Behavioural Insights team, we aim to answer a simple question. How does the content we see on our screens influence the sustainable choices we make in our daily lives? In this study from Bit and Sky, we spoke to three and a half thousand people in all the six markets in Europe where Sky operates. We are hopeful the results of this study will be the beginning of a growing data set that will inspire broadcasters and content creators to work in partnership to encourage and normalize less carbon use by consumers. And uh, finally, for the first time, we have the empirical evidence to help broadcasters 
understand how, quote, change can be achieved if we work together. Uh, David, if the Nazis had had these capabilities, they would have been very, very pleased people. The Nazis had to do their propaganda by very um, bright, overt, powerful events, whether it was in Stadia or whether it was in the film studio. But we're now talking about the use of applied political psychology through the government and through these vast media outlets. This is propaganda on steroids. It could be argued, Brian, that the Nazis do have that um, ability now. Um, mm -hmm. the, the degree to which this is all based on lies is simply astounding. And the degree to which it tends to overwhelm people, at least initially, because it's everywhere, it's in every media outlet, it's 24-7, the number of propaganda hits that people pick up every day is very, very large now, and they are swayed. You can see the belief system being skewed, but the advantage that we have is we're able to concentrate on the truth, and uh, ultimately that will be more powerful. Indeed. They've come a long way, Brian, from trying to strong-arm people into paying the TV license, so I've really <laughs> got to hand it to them. Yeah. Well, exposure is one of the key weapons, the truth, evidence, and exposure. So if you're wondering what can we do about it, speak out, show other people exactly what's going on. We need to end there. And I'm going to say that there will be no extra time uh, today. We're thanking Stephanie for her excellent studio production today, but we're unable to do extra time for people who normally tune in with us. A huge thank you to all our viewers and subscribers. And a very big thank you for the increasing quality of the information and uh, documents, uh, uh, emails that are coming into the UK column. We can only do this with both your financial support and the help of this research, which clearly a lot of people are now joining in with. So we'll end there. David, Patrick, thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time on Wednesday. Bye bye.